I'll invite you to find Mark chapter 10 in your Bibles. Find Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse 23. Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse 23. Um, it occurred to me as I was preparing for this message, um, what a dramatic reorientation it is to become a Christian. I was speaking with someone this week who came to Christ more as an adult, whereas uh, I became a Christian at the age of eight and had grown up in church prior to that. It's all I've, all I've really ever known. Uh, even prior to understanding the good news of Jesus Christ, I, I knew you know, church and, and Christian Christianity type stuff, but it's a very dramatic reorientation to become a Christian. I don't know if you've ever tried to write with your non-dominant hand, how weird that feels, how backwards, how strange. Um, that times a million is what it's like to become a Christian and try to live life where all of a sudden all your preconceived notions of what is great and what is good and what is true wealth get turned upside down and reversed and backwards. And that's sort of what we've been talking about in Mark chapter 10. Uh, Jesus has been patiently reorienting his disciples from their worldly orientation toward the kingdom orientation. Uh, we saw him teach that uh, worldly greatness is not the same as kingdom greatness. Worldly goodness is not the same as kingdom goodness. And worldly wealth is not the same as kingdom wealth. Is very, very different. You cannot add Christianity to your life like a new hobby among many others. It changes and flips everything upside down. And we're going to continue that thought this morning somewhat briefly because I really, mainly this service is going to be us participating in the Lord's Supper. And I'll explain, explain that more in a little bit. But we're going to continue what we read last week when Jesus interacted with this rich man who could not leave his wealth to follow Jesus. Uh, he was very morally good, but he couldn't let go of his wealth to follow Jesus. And he's going to continue that thought now in verses 23 through 27. And let's read that together. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, this is right after that rich man left disheartened because he just couldn't let go of things to follow Jesus. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Let's pray together before we meditate on this together. Father, we pause now to... Remember that what's taking place here, we hope and pray, is a supernatural thing. That it's not just one man transferring ideas to other people, but that it's you speaking to us through your word, through your Holy Spirit, and transforming us. So we pray for that transformation by the renewing of our minds this morning. 
Lord, please help us to understand, to receive, and be changed by your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. We'll go back to the first verse and just kind of walk our way through. There's two misconceptions that Jesus is, is working to correct here. The first one leads to the second one, and the second one's really the big idea for this whole extended passage we've been working our way through for a while. The first misconception is that worldly wealth equals God's favor. It's a misconception that worldly wealth equals God's favor. Look back in this passage and notice how shocked the disciples are at Jesus' teaching here. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. When was the last time that you were amazed? If you're like me and I have sort of an enthusiasm deficit, it's uh, something uh, Meredith and I talk about a lot. I'm sort of, my emotional range is, is sort of that narrow. Something's really exciting, I might get up there. Something's really bad, I might get down there. The disciples were amazed. They were amazed at this teaching that it is difficult for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. A little further, Jesus goes on, he reiterates the same idea, and then he gives this hyperbolic illustration. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And now, and they were exceedingly astonished. I don't know what this looked like. I don't know how people knew that they were exceedingly astonished. I don't know if they were like fainting and passing out, but they were exceedingly astonished at this teaching. Now, we who have grown up in church are kind of used to these ideas, maybe have heard this passage before, but we need to hear it afresh, perhaps like they did. Because in their culture, at least as much as in ours, they would tend to think that wealth indicated God's favor. They would look at the wealthy and think, okay, they must really have their life together. God must really be pleased with them. And Jesus is saying that's not necessarily true. In fact, wealth can be the very thing that blocks you from receiving God's favor. Now, this is a very sneaky misconception for us because we too see wealth as a status symbol rather than a stewardship. We see wealth as a status symbol. If we're wearing nice clothes and driving nice shiny cars to our, our nice put together homes with our nice lawns, then we feel good. We feel secure. If we don't have those things, we can tend to look at people who do and think they're the ones that have it all together. And we see this a lot in the Christian church. We see this in the prosperity gospel. Many of the preachers you'll hear on television preach that wealth equals God's favor. But here Jesus teaches quite the opposite. Wealth is a stewardship. Now, it's a nuanced subject and one that this passage doesn't fully address. So if you read through Proverbs, I love Proverbs. It's one of my very favorite books of the Bible. You'll see a lot in there that wise people, and we should be wise people, tend to work hard and therefore earn money, and they tend not to spend it foolishly. And therefore there is, as a principle, the fact that people who are wise and living according to God's principles will tend to work hard and earn money. Okay, that, that is a principle in the Bible. But what you see through the greater context of the Bible, and particularly in the New Testament, 
is that all that money that wise people are earning is not meant to be hoarded for selfish luxuries. It's meant to be used. It's a tool. It's a tool to use to worship God. It's a tool to use to serve people. It's a tool to use to make disciples. Okay, it's not meant to become a lowercase g God that we love and worship. It's meant to be a tool to worship the true God. Like, like any of our resources, like our, our lives, our time, our energy, these things are tools to be used for worship and service and discipleship, not things to be hoarded for ourselves. Wealth is dangerous. That's sort of the, the underlying message of this whole passage. Wealth can be very, very dangerous. It is remarkably, notably, and especially difficult for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Okay, Jesus couldn't say it any more simply. It is especially and remarkably and notably difficult for wealthy people to enter the kingdom of God. And we talked a little bit about that last week, about how wealth can trick us into thinking we don't have a need for God or a need for salvation. We talked about how wealth can, wealth can trap us because we just can't let go of it once we have it to embrace God himself. I'm not going to go back into all that this week, but I did think of sort of a test to see if we are being tricked and trapped by wealth that I want you to kind of take in your minds. You don't need to answer out loud, but think of your socioeconomic status right now. Okay, think of your, your home situation, you know, about how much your house may be worth or, or whatever, or wherever your living situation. Think about your wardrobe situation. What name brands are in your closet? Think about your car situation. Okay, what year model car are you driving? What kind of shape is it in? Think about your neighborhood situation. What's the general socioeconomic level of your neighborhood? Think about all these things. Now, imagine that as I'm preaching, a booming voice comes from heaven and says, Doolin's Grove, I want you to liquidate your assets and sell. Okay, I'm not asking you to sell everything. I'm asking you to liquidate and and get rid of and give away enough of your assets from your savings accounts, your retirement, whatever, so that you ratchet down one or two levels socioeconomically. So you're going to have to move to a neighborhood um, that on average just has a couple levels less income. You're going to have to move out of your house to a house that's uh, about $20,000, $30,000 worth less than yours. Okay, you're going to have to exchange your wardrobe um, for, for things a couple levels less in terms of their quality and their niceness and their price tags. You have to exchange your car for something a couple levels older, doesn't look as good. Okay. The test is just simply how willing would you be to do it? If the Lord genuinely asked you to, to take steps that would cause you to ratchet down, would that be a big issue for you? Or would that be a real sticking point for your obedience? Now, this is a really practical question, and, and you will, you will, as you follow Christ, have to answer this and put your money where your mouth is. And, and we have, and we have not always, um, we've not always been faithful for fear of what it would do to our financial situation. And this is part of the ongoing growth process of being Christians, an, an increasingly loose grip on the world's wealth for an increasingly tight grip on wealth in the kingdom of God. 
So it's for each of us to evaluate where our hearts are here, but the, the misconception that we need to correct is that wealth equals God's favor. It does not necessarily equal God's favor. It can be very, very dangerous. Okay? This leads to the biggest misconception of all, and what I think is actually the key verse of this whole passage, which is verse 27. Let's skip forward and read verse 27. All of this teaching of Jesus's was freaking the disciples out. They were exceedingly astonished to the point that they said, actually back in verse 26, then who can be saved? If the wealthy are as likely to get into the kingdom of God as a camel to get through the eye of a needle, and if you know what the eye of a needle is, it's a needle that you would use for sewing, and at the top of it there's a a round part where you put the thread through. It's tiny, okay? Obviously, it is impossible for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle. And that's Jesus' point. So the disciples are just baffled. Well, if these people who seem to have their lives together, who clearly have God's favor, can't get into the kingdom of heaven any easier than a camel through the eye of a needle, who in the world can be saved? And that finally gets to the point Jesus was getting to all along from the beginning when he first told them he was going to go and be crucified for them. Verse 27. Jesus looked at them and said, With man, it is impossible, impossible, impossible. But not with God, for all things are possible with God. So this second misconception, this biggest misconception is that it is difficult to be saved. Jesus used that language as he was correcting their first misconception, but in all the while he was leading them like that chess game we talked about last week. He was leading them to this conclusion that it's, it's difficult to be saved. It's not just difficult to be saved. It's impossible to be saved. That's the conclusion he was trying to get them to the whole time. Being saved is not easy. Being saved is not difficult. Being saved is impossible with man, but not with God. Human greatness our attempts at goodness, our status of wealth. None of those factor in. None of those contribute to us achieving salvation because salvation cannot be achieved. It can only be received. I want to read to you a common passage you've probably heard many times. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, and it's actually on here too. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is a great passage of scripture. It really sums up what's behind what Jesus said back in Mark 10. You know, our niceness doesn't save us. Our relational Um, approval with other people doesn't save us. I'm kind of haunted by a relationship I've had with someone and and they were approaching their death. And I was eager. I didn't really know them well, but I was eager to try to get to the gospel with them. There wasn't a lot of time left. And and every time I would come forward with this gift, the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, he would counter with, I've been a good person my whole life. I've got a lot of friends, and I don't have any enemies. I'm pretty sure I'm good. 
And I would say, well, that, that's admirable. That's great. It's good, you know, to, to be good to people, and it's good to be kind to people. But that doesn't earn you salvation. The only way you can be saved is by receiving this free gift. And he would say, I've been a really good person. I went to church my whole life. I don't have any enemies. He just kept batting it away, batting it away with his own track record of goodness. And I don't know what the Lord ever did in his heart. I don't know. It's one of those things that haunts me. And I've told you before, it's a, it's a bleak and uh, morbid thing to say, but Lord willing, I'll be here for decades. And that may mean that I am serving you on your deathbed one day. And wait, I don't know that. You may be serving me on my deathbed one day. I could, I could have a terrible diagnosis tomorrow. But, but if I am, and I start talking about the gospel, man, I hope you don't say, I'm a good person. You remember my attendance records at Doolin's Grove. You remember my giving. I hope you don't bat the gospel away because you think you're good enough. Because what Jesus is teaching us here is the whole point is none of us are good enough. That's why he had to come and die. That's why he had to die for us. And praise God that he did. And that's what communion is all about. Now, there's lots of implications for this that we're not going to go into because I want to take time for communion. Um, This is what house to house is good for. You can discuss some of the implications of this uh, with these small groups that meet during the week. Uh, There's implications for evangelism. When we're evangelizing, we're not inviting people to be our spiritual workout partners and, and do some of the same religious stuff we do. We're offering them the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. Another implication is there's hope for anybody and everybody, no matter how far from God they may seem, because it's no more impossible for that person than it was for you, than it was for me. It's impossible for all of us, apart from God's work through Christ. So there's hope for anybody and everybody. There's implications for us as Christians. There's humility here in meditating on these things. We're not achievers. We're recipients. Okay, it gives us gratitude rather than, than a, a, an entitlement attitude. There's implications for us being merciful and gracious because we are pure and simple, the recipients of mercy, not getting what we deserve, the punishment we deserve. We're recipients of grace, getting the blessings that we didn't deserve. And so now we get to transmit that mercy and grace to others. Uh, there's gold here. But what I want to do now is turn toward the Lord's Supper together, because this is the regular symbolic reminder that Jesus set up for his church to not stray too far from this good news. Okay, I think he knew that we would be regularly tempted to forget about the good news and just start trying to be good people and miss out on a relationship with God through, through Christ. So as we partake of these elements, we do so not as achievers, but as receivers. You don't have to be a member of Doolin's Grove to partake of the elements of the Lord's table here. Uh, we do ask that you be a Christian. Okay, this is for Christians. This is for those who are trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation and reconciliation with God. This is for people who are following Jesus as their Lord. Okay, and if you're not sure if you're in that position, I would say take this opportunity not to partake in the Lord's Supper, but to pray through these things. And if there's any way I can help you pray through these things and gain clarity after the service, I really want to. And I'm available to you for that. Um, so what I'd like, what I'm going to invite you to do.
is to just listen to a few scriptures that sum up the gospel. And let this sort of set your heart in the right disposition for the Lord's Supper, and then we'll, we'll receive the elements together. Isaiah 53.5 says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. In 2 Corinthians 5.19, now this will be the last one. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's trespasses against them. These are the things that these elements are meant to remind us of. So we'll receive them now gratefully.